0: This is April 21st, 2019, and uh, since this is Easter Sunday, I couldn't resist doing something on uh, Christianity, uh, comparing and contrasting with Zen Buddhism. Uh, You know, when when all is said and done, we are embedded in a Judeo-Christian culture, and uh, we naturally... Uh, partake of some of the ideas and beliefs, and um, maybe not beliefs, but... When, when when we were kids, we had no religious upbringing at all. We never went to church. We never heard any kind of mention of religion in, in our family. And uh, I grew up with a certain... At first... Bewilderment at the tenets of Christianity and then contempt. And uh, I think, I like to think I've outgrown that, uh, the contempt. Still some bewilderment. Uh, the thought, what always seemed just bizarre to me was that, that people could believe in an, an all knowing, all powerful, all-loving God who would allow all of the terrible suffering that we've seen throughout history. That just never made any sense to me. Um, The other thing that always caused a kind of short circuit in my mind was that Christ died for our sins. I, have never, I still don't understand that statement. I understand the point of collective responsibility and collective shame, maybe. Uh, I think of our great historical burden of slavery uh, and the case for reparations, uh, because even though uh, none of us, to our knowledge, was around then, uh, there is a collective is a way in which we uh, have benefited, even as we are we are afflicted with the the awful karma of slavery. As Americans, we also have benefited uh, from slavery, just starting with economically, but that. Christ died for our sins and then there's also just the whole thing of sin. Uh, I'm told by my wife who uh, whose whole education before college was in Catholic girl schools that there's this idea that of children being able to sin that uh, they're they They have some kind of in the in the in the tradition Catholic tradition they have some kind of dispensation where they they don't go to hell for their sins little you know little children, innocent children, but they go to purgatory but still uh, and then I just put it all aside all of this um, bewilderment at this world religion. Uh, recognizing that it is a world religion, there are hundreds of millions of people who believe in the Christian faith, and and that there must be something to it. In my uh, contempt phase, I, uh, when I was just out of college, I. Uh, Set my sails for San Francisco, which was kind of the end of the rainbow in those days, 1970, and uh, found myself at the uh, San Francisco production of Hair, and uh, I very proudly wore a T-shirt I had bought uh, that said in big letters, like like Superman script, (laughs) with wide at the top and then going down to the bottom, "Jesus saves," and. And I did it in a sneering way because I didn't know that there was a lot of Christian uh, uh, faith uh, in 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 hair. At the end of the play, uh, the actors invited us to everyone to come up on stage to hug, and uh, so I I found my way up there and and I was you know exalted from this wonderful musical and. Uh, the, uh, the lead singer, the lead actor of the hair production, when we hugged, he, he stepped back and he looked at my t-shirt and he said, yeah, that's far out, man, that's cool, that's great. And I, I felt a, a kind of shame that, that he, he was someone of faith and uh, I was just sneering at faith. Uh, and that, that kind of rattled me uh, a bit. Uh, Because we had connected in a certain way, the way audience members and performers do, and then uh, I had kind of breached that connection with my immature sneering. Still, I could never relate to um, the idea that uh, we have to... uh, We have to find our salvation in Christ. Um, What appealed to me, the first thing appealed to me about Zen is uh, that there is no God concept and that uh, we are enjoined to look inward, look to ourselves. And for a while, there too, I felt uh, that some kind of pride that Uh, over that. Um, I remember uh, responding with appreciation when I heard that in Japan uh, there is this broad uh, distinction made between uh, Zen as resting on self-power and a a type of Buddhism called Pure Land Buddhism that rests on other power, self-power and other power. And And I congratulate myself that I was not uh, that I relying on any kind of God or even Buddha himself, but uh, only on my own uh, innate wisdom. But really, it's such a such an unfair uh, kind of concept: self power and other power. Because, as we all know, uh, the real essence of Zen, in the essence of Zen, you have to go beyond self and other. Uh, as long as we are relying on this ego self for our uh, <coughs> liberation, we will be completely lost. We have to go beyond self. And that also means beyond other. Um. And then I learned about this idea—I don't know—only about ten years ago—that uh, that what we refer to so often as our true nature, Buddha nature, original self, uh, original mind, essential nature—all of these uh, synonyms for um, this ineffable, transcendent reality—that um, in Original Buddhism, there weren't there weren't these 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 concepts. Uh, from what I've read, it was only until a couple hundred years after the Buddha, when the Mahayanists came up with these these terms. And uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom behind uh, innovating, coming up with these terms, uh, because without them, uh, the essential truth of the Dharma, shunyata, no self, no thing, uh, can seem awfully abstract and remote and cold. So it seemed to be a wise thing to come up with these terms to point to what really is nothing, no self. Our true self is no self, our own self is no self. We recite it in Hakuin Chant. It's just a different way of looking at it. Back to that in a minute. Uh, But just as I was appreciating that today is Easter Sunday and that uh, most people uh, in the United States are acknowledging it, if not honoring it completely. Uh, And then the irony of the run-up to Easter Sunday, having the Cathedral of Notre Dame burn. And I found this article uh, by Christopher Caldwell. He's uh, the author of a book called Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, Immigration, Islam, and the West. And he wrote this just yesterday. And the title is, Why Did Non-Believers Grieve for Notre Dame? I'm going to read just a few little extracts from here uh, to, to make the point that uh, there was something very important that people were grieving, an uh, important phenomenon. That is, so many people grieving in France and, and no doubt around the world for the burning of Notre Dame. Uh, He described young people congregating on the banks of the Seine, some weeping, certain of them sang and prayed. He said it brought to mind Philip Larkin's poem, Church Going, which evokes people gravitating by instinct to a disused church after religious doctrine has died out. And he says one could be forgiven for asking Why? It says, for centuries, French people revere their cathedrals, priests, and relics, but they haven't always. After the French Revolution, Notre Dame was used as a warehouse, and they haven't lately. Just 6% of French people go to mass, down from 35% half a century ago, 50 years ago. Is there a latent Catholicism in France that we fail to see? Or are these only expressions of inchoate religious impulses? This, uh, what he describes as a drop in religious participation in France is something I've read everywhere. is going on uh, in the world, all through the West anyway. Um, not to mention... Japan Uh, when I when I uh, left Japan both of the Roshis at at the two temples I trained at said to me Zen is dying in Japan and being reborn in the United States um but now we see signs that it could even have uh, have crested in the United States judging by attendance at sittings here, and um, sashines are still big. um, But uh, so few young people come to sashines. But to continue reading here, he says there is scant evidence that French people have been returning to Catholicism. Um, The pollster so-and-so published last month that in matters of religion, the country is undergoing an anthropological shift. As in the United States, the size of the still religious generation born after World War II long disguised the decline. Today, as that generation ages and dies, I think of the, I don't know, seventy-five percent of session participants who are baby boomers. Today, as that generation ages and dies, a demographic trapdoor opens under the religious population. I'll just keep reading. He says, Today, there are fewer than half as many French parish parish priests as in 1992. I'm also thinking of what I've heard that uh, in Japan they can't find Priests to keep the temples, Zen temples, open there, and more and more of them are are uh, are uh, without priests. And he says perhaps these French ex-Catholics, while sadly cut loose from their cultural and religious moorings, have gained access to a, compensa- a compensating sophistication. Au contraire. The the alternative to Christianity, Mister Forquet shows in his books, has not been lucidity; it has been gaga conspiracy theorizing. A third of French people, eighteen to twenty-four years old, believe that airplane contrails have been seeded with hazardous chemicals. I heard that even from a Sangha member here, and that the United States military can provoke storms. Uh, versus only seven or eight percent of those over sixty five who believe such things, uh, the decline of religion does not seem to have grounded people in something more true this is this is fascinating that uh, as fewer and fewer people uh, participate in religion, more and more of those same people believe in what he calls gaga conspiracy theory and that 's an, that 's a Another topic I'm going to tackle in an upcoming Taisho. And then he says that is partly why the fire at Notre Dame shook so many to the core. Objects and traditions bound up with religious belief lend a feeling of sense and stability. For believers, they are a reinforcement, for non believers, they are a substitute. Notre Dame is perhaps the greatest such object in Europe. It is a consoling relic for believers and non-believers alike. So he seems to not take a position so much as just acknowledging that it serves a purpose, that the, these big cathedrals and, and, and religious uh, structures and institutions generally have serve a purpose of, uh, he says giving a feeling of sense and stability, well, that's better than nothing. Um, but how much f- further uh, is the promise of, of real religious um, practice? And that's where what leads us to an article uh, by Robert N. I n c h a u s t i, Robert Incousti, uh, about Thomas Merton and a more sophisticated uh, understanding of Christianity. And this was this was a thrill to me to read this this morning. It's called Thomas Merton's Apologies to an Unbeliever, and it, the article is from 20, 2008, 11 years ago. But it, for the first time, helped me really appreciate um, Christianity as something of grounded in truth. And uh, I'll just be reading from it here. And he starts with a quote of from Kafka, Kafka's diaries: "Believing means liberating the indestructible element in oneself, or, more accurately, being indestructible, or, more accurately, being." And begins In the year he died, the Trappist monk and best selling author Thomas Merton published an essay addressed to quote, unbelievers, apologizing for the inadequacy and impertinence of what had been inflicted upon them in the name of religion. It was not just because the manipulative antics and vaudeville of the defenders of the faith embarrassed him, but also because it seemed to him that their defenses, constituted a falsification of religious truth. Faith comes by hearing, says St. Paul, but by hearing what, he asked? The cries of snake handlers? The soothing platitudes of the religious operator? One must be able to listen to the inscrutable ground of one's own being, and who am I to say that the atheist's reservations about religious commitment do not protect in them this kind of listening to take away a couple of negatives there he's suggesting that uh, atheists uh possibly are find this as a kind of protection their their disbelief as a kind of protection from those snake handlers and re- soothing platitudes and then he goes on merton quoting merton while i certainly believe that the message of the gospel is something that we are called upon to preach I think we will communicate it more intelligently in dialogue. And now the author, in Kausti, continues, Merton asserted that the religious problem of the 20th century was not only a problem of the growing number of unbelievers and atheists, it was also a problem of believers who had substituted comfortable cultural illusions and cheap grace for authentic discipleship. The faith that has grown cold, he wrote, is not only the faith that the unbeliever has lost, but the sentimental, false, quote, faith the believer has kept. We do not have to choose between science and religion, uh, excuse me, we do not have to choose between faith and science, Merton argued, nor between Christ and the world. In fact, we can only choose Christ by choosing the world as it really is in Him and encountered by us in the ground of our own personal freedom and love. God is not an object, thing, external reality, or grand dame, but being itself, one with the ground of each of us. This is, this is pure Zen. Atheists, in quote, exist in God just as Christians do. They just do not call the ground of their being God, if they call it anything. This is where a dialogue with them might begin, and this is, I think, uh, always been from a a point of view of of, uh, experience in the Dharma, this is the most problematic thing about the word God is it suggests an agent, a thing, an entity, and once you have a thing, an entity, uh, much less an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing one, then you've got problems. Theologically we we one can argue that uh, this more sophisticated understanding of God is something of the ineffable, what is beyond our our comprehension uh, that that is really not different from uh, these terms we use Buddha nature, true self, and everything like that. But the problem is that I think okay, one can say sure. Well, its true self also could be taken as having some agency, some uh, some self there. But uh, but it's I think less at least those of us raised in this culture were less likely to see that as an agent, any of those Buddhist terms as an agent, than we are to see God as an agent. We've seen too many paintings and other portrayals of God with his gray beard and up in the heavens. And then uh, it says here in his essay, The Contemplative and the Atheist, Merton wrote that, quote, many who consider themselves atheists are in fact persons who are discontented with the naive idea of God, which makes him appear to be an object or a thing in a merely finite and human sense. But those who are familiar with the apophatic tradition in theology and mysticism are fully aware that the temporary or permanent inability to imagine God or to experience him as present or even to find him credible is not something discovered by modern man or confined to our own age. Um, This word apophatic sent me scurrying to the dictionary and... uh, And here's what I came up with uh, online, actually. uh, Apophatic theology, also known as negative theology. And this is what it says, Attempts to describe God by negation. That's what apophatic theology is. Describing God by negation. Uh, I think of uh, the Buddha saying, Not this, not that. Again, appreciate that... uh, he didn't make the next step to Buddha nature or true nature. He just kept to the negation. Not this. It's not this. It's not that. It was later that it became put in the positive. So the apophatic theology is attempts to describe God by negation. In orthodox Christianity, uh, a theology, uh, apophatic theology is based on the assumption that God's essence is unknowable or ineffable. And on the inadequacy of human language to describe God, that's that's Zen. Whereas the opposite, the opposite of apophatic theology, is cataphatic theology, belief in the incarnation, through which God has revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. There, that was a quite a revelation to me. to understand that there are, it clarified the, the respect that I have for those in Christianity who don't just look to uh, Jesus to solve our problems um, and things like that. Just to continue here, uh, the literature of the mystics and that would be Zen too, is filled with such observations, that is, that we, the, the apophatic tradition that we can't know God. And the life of the Christian contemplative is not a life of willful concentration upon a few clear and comforting ideas, but a life of inner struggle in which the monk, like Christ himself in the desert, is tested. In fact, Sam Harris, in the last half of his book, End of Faith, He's one of the best known uh, atheists uh, in contemporary literature. Sam Harris acknowledges the possibility of an agnostic spirituality that takes religious experience seriously in the form of a secular phenomenology. <clears throat> Says, uh, in the years following Thomas Merton's death, religious people launched an offensive against secular society science and atheism their primary weapon was a rigid reductive biblical literalism this new passionate doctrinal rigidity ultimately gave birth to the backlash of militant atheisms we are now current, currently experiencing this is this is helpful to see the the uh thesis antithesis and and st- well, another antithesis, um, the back and forth of reactions. In recent years, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and Sam Harris, and others, have published best selling polemics challenging Christianity with little or no recognition of the apophatic tradition. The combative tenor of these books is no doubt a response. To the onslaught of 20 plus years of know nothing pop apologetics that has so polarized and dumbed down the national conversation concerning faith that when I read these books, I find myself agreeing with everything they say. And yet, at the same time, I also find in them the flawed logic of the straw man fallacy. The God they do not believe in is not a God I ever believed in. And the believers, in quotes, they attack our insecure, faithless souls who use religion as a drug to soothe their anxieties or as a club to beat those who disagree with them. True persons of faith do not reject scientific discoveries, secular wisdom, or open dialogue. In fact, such things can be seen as the very fruits of faith, not its antitheses. And then this good old quote attributed to Einstein. Not can't be sure. Uh, I never knew him. Uh, there, there, there's this thing in, on, the, on the internet where people wonderful quotes are attributed to Einstein or the Buddha or others that they never said. At least in the case of the Buddha, but this is attributed to Einstein. Sounds like him. He says the religion of the future will be a cosmic religion. It should transcend a personal God and avoid dogmas and theology. Covering both the natural and the spiritual, it should be based on a religious sense arising from the experience of all things, natural and spiritual, as a meaningful unity. Buddhism answers this description. Einstein. When he says natural, he uses the word twice here. Uh, it means, I think you could say, spir- uh, science, the natural world. What, what science, this, discoveries of science. I know uh, the Dalai Lama is a great believer in science. And uh, has said, I was at a conference with him long ago when uh, the question came up of uh, uh, believing in things that are contrary to science. And he, he took the example of Mount Sumeru. Mount Sumeru is this mythological center of the universe. It's in old Buddhist texts. Uh, right there, the center of the universe is this indescribably vast, tall mountain, Mount Sumeru. And uh, he said, I don't believe in Mount Sumeru. <laughs> he said, if, if, you have a, if you have a choice of something, uh, to believe in something, or if, believe in science, if it refutes it, I'm going with the science." And uh, I think a lot of us feel the same way. How can they be at odds in the end, science and faith? And then he continues to quote Merton, What the Christian contemplative learns is not a clearer idea of God, but a deeper trust, a purer love and a more complete abandonment to one he knows to be beyond all understanding. This is this would make such a difference if when, when Christian theologians are challenged about how an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God can allow such suffering in the world, if they could just take a page from Bodhidharma and say, I don't know, but instead going into these convoluted intellectual kind of rationalizations of it would make such a difference. There, done. I don't know. I don't understand. There, that's the source of all understanding. And he develops that further. Uh, In this abandonment, um, that is abandonment to not knowing, The contemplative has access to values which the contemporary atheist tends to forget, underestimate, or ignore. These values include a healthy skepticism toward abstract reductionism and scientism, a sympathy for the paradoxical nature of truth and its existential and experiential expression, not to mention an appreciation for the literary and figurative nature of mind. there's a lot in this sentence. A healthy skepticism toward abstract reductionism and scientism. Scientism basically means an attachment to science. Uh, It's not science itself. Um, Scientism would argue that uh, rebirth is impossible um, because of the lack of evidence of rebirth. a sympathy for the paradoxical nature of truth. In, in in Zen, paradox is as far as we can go in words in pointing to the truth. It has to be paradoxical. It has to have the two sides. Not to mention an appreciation for the literary and figurative nature of mind. I think elsewhere here he talks about the the danger of taking the Bible literally or taking anything in in Buddhism literally. He continues, the apophatic experience of God as unknowable does to some extent verify the atheist view that God is not an object of precise knowledge and so cannot cannot be apprehended as a thing to be studied. But the difference between the apophatic contemplative and the atheist is, is that where the atheist's experience of God is purely negative, that of the contemplative is, as Merton puts it, negatively positive. That is to say, the believer responds to our cognitive limitations with an inward turn, whereas the non-believer redoubles his calculative ambitions. It is almost as if the believer is more skeptical than the skeptic, in that he suspects concepts per se, Relinquishing any attempt to grasp God in limited human terms, faith reveals itself as the ground of human experience in the ground of being. Here, Merton notes, we enter a realm of apparent contradiction which eludes clear explanation so that contemplatives prefer not to talk about it at all. Indeed, in the past, serious mistakes have been made and deadly confusion have arisen from inadequate attempts to explain this mystery. It's just what I was I was saying, where if you raise these basic questions about doubts about Christ, Christian belief, you can find yourself drawn into a bramble bush of uh, conceptual rationalizations. And then the author here says, this is why the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao and why St. John of the Cross finds the fullest expression of his experience of the divine in nothing. These mystics are not making the step, the skeptics' point, as tempting as it may be, to misunderstand them. Rather, they are announcing an ontological turn ontological refers to being. To the question, how do you know God exists? They reply, who is asking? This is not as much of an evasion as one might first think, but a call for a shift away from epistemological priorities to psychological and ontological ones. As we can... This is hard. It's, it's hard enough reading it on the paper, but hearing it read, I sympathize with you, huh? <laughs> As we can see in any good poet, psychoanalyst, or Zen master, the first step in any deepening of awareness is to question the illusory ground upon which the Cartesian egos hold forth. If the skeptic fails to take this move seriously or the believer, in quotes, refuses to acknowledge the validity of the skeptic's reductionist alternative, then the dialogue is over and the polemics ensue. When Merton wrote this essay in 1968, he believed that it was time for the Christian consciousness of God to be expressed in more contemporary language. The medieval ideas of God formed in accord with the medieval ideas about the cosmos, cosmos, earth, physics, and the biological and psychological structure of man were clearly out of date, but, and he puts this, the author puts this in quotation marks, these words of of Merton, the reality of experience beyond concepts, however, is not itself modified by changes of culture. There is a timelessness, a timeless validity, truth to any tradition, whether it's Zen or the uh, apophatic tradition of christianity uh that is that is beyond concepts and then little bit here from an article uh, by David Brooks called The Neural Buddhists, and this is also from 11 years ago. Just to pluck out a couple of paragraphs, uh, my guess is that the atheism debate is going to be a sideshow. The cognitive revolution is not going to end up undermining faith in God, it's going to end up challenging faith in the Bible. That's the other thing. Boy, if you if it's like shooting fish in a barrel to challenge people who believe in the literal uh, teachings of the Bible, he says Brooks says researchers now spend a lot of time trying to understand universal moral intuitions. Genes are not merely selfish, it appears. instead, people seem to have deep instincts for fairness, empathy, and attachment. And then he says, this new wave of research will not seep into the public realm in the form of militant atheism. Instead, it will lead to what you might call neural Buddhism. And then he, he outlines that. First, the self is not a fixed entity, but a dynamic process of relationships. Second, underneath the patina of different religions, people around the world have common moral intuitions. Third, people are equipped to experience the sacred, to have moments of elevated experience when they transcend boundaries and overflow with love. And I think that's what was happening on the banks of the Seine River when people, even the so-called atheists, the non-believers, found themselves in tears to their surprise, their amazement. I heard on the radio accounts of that. Because of what it symbolized what Notre Dame symbolizes this uh, religion as that which is beyond what we can apprehend with our conceptual mind faith it was of course there was no no faith could be lost by the burning of a cathedral, but that's how it came became conflated in people's natural. Um, re- re- reflex response to seeing it destroyed is somehow uh, seeing faith itself their their faith under threat there have been uh, i 've heard i don't can 't speak with as an authority but i 've heard that the big monasteries in Japan have burned down over and over again and been rebuilt it 's wonderful to see the impulse. <laughs> Uh, to rebuild um, Notre Dame. All right, our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. Happy Easter.
1: Thou number I vow To the brave And the I vow To brute dharma the brute arm against Beyond measure I vow To Constrate the Great way of Buddha I vow To attain. Beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to, to penetrate, penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to, to attain. All beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to a brute against beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow Two back